Good evening, guys. How are y'all doing? Welcome to Coffee House Theology on on Wednesday night. Good to, good to see everybody. Um, wow, this is wild. Uh, yeah, be careful. Be careful how you raise kids. Um, wow. Uh, we we're we're studying through Galatians. We did Galatians one and uh, and two and and uh, tonight uh, Benjamin's going to bring us Galatians three. I think we've got Slido. There we go. And uh, we've got to submit questions. Uh, we've got uh, well, you go to the website slido.com and you enter the room number, which is nine one zero nine, and then you can ask questions. And if you and you can also look at it and see questions that you like, and you can like the questions, and those will bring them to the top of the list. And so that way, as we do Q and A at the end, we'll we'll be able to prioritize the questions. And uh, re we're really glad you're here. Really glad you're here. Um, let's pray, and then we'll and then I'll introduce Ben. Father God, we're thankful. We're thankful for your grace. Um, we're thankful for your son that saves us. We're thankful for your word, Father, that in, that in chaotic times, in times that we don't know which way to go, that we have a place to stand. We have a place that's rock. And so, Father, when, when, when we teach, Father, uh, open our hearts and our minds to your truth and change us. Uh, we, sh we should never encounter you. We should never encounter your truth and leave the same people. And so, Father, as we hear your truth and as, 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 it, as it opens up our hearts and minds, Change us. Let us be different people that walk out of here an hour and a half from now than came in. Uh, bless Benjamin as he brings the word. Anoint him. Uh, give him your words to speak. And uh, just bless us tonight. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And uh, tonight, um, this, is, this is really wild. Tonight, my, my son is going to teach. Uh, Benjamin became a Christian at four years old. Um, probably my favorite church memory of him, we have a young adult service at Kairos. Uh, at the main campus called Kairos, and Benjamin was seven years old. We were sitting there, and Mike Glenn, who's the senior pastor, got up, and he said, I should be able to ask you at any time what you're reading in the Bible and what Jesus is teaching you through it. Let me show you how easy this is. Benjamin, come up here. Called my seven-year-old up in front of 500 people. So I begin to pray. And he goes, so Benjamin, where are you in the Bible? And he goes, we're at the parting of the Red Sea. He said, were they getting ready to cross? He said, no, no, sir. So are they, are they, are they on the other side? I said, no, sir. Has he left them in the middle? He said, yes, yeah. so we'll, we'll go home and get them across. <laughs> and he said, Benjamin, what, what is God teaching you through this? And Benjamin said, God doesn't do miracles to show off, but to confirm his authority. To which the entirety of Kairos went, I heard 500 people go, ooh, to which I went, praise Jesus, okay, because there's all kinds of ways this could have gone, and I'm very thankful for how it ended. Um, but uh, he's, he's a junior, rising junior at Princeton University, an English major, minor in journalism, possibly theater arts, creative writing. Um, he has probably, he has sharpened my faith more than anyone else in my life. The, the way that he thinks, the way that he asks questions, um, he, he, is, he is fatally fluent uh, with, with, with both the way that he speaks and the way that he writes. God has, has truly gifted him in work. Um, but besides his relationship with Christ, probably the thing I'm most proud of is that he is kind. And if there's anything that the world needs more of, it is kindness. And so with that, Benjamin, bring us Galatians 3. Thank you. Yeah. 
So we'll be we'll we'll be starting about about where we where we left off last time. I wanted to start off by saying thank you to a lot of you guys. I know a lot of you are involved in like the Station Hill College Ministry, which is dedicated to keeping me fed during finals. Um, and so I, I appreciate the small snack boxes and letters of encouragement and all of that. It, it, means, it means a whole lot to me. And that's not something I feel like I get to respond to a lot. Now I have, all, have you all here, so I can, I can do that. Um, at the beginning of the outline, I stole uh, Pastor Jay's uh, sort of model of the book of Galatians. So we're in, we're starting in chapter three, so we're sort of in that second section. So we spent the last two weeks talking about how Paul has been defending this idea of being saved by faith and not through the law. And so now, now comes the explanation. He's, he's defended it. He's said, the legalists are wrong. They're, they're turning you astray. And now he's saying, here's what this actually means. So we, we, get, we get into the sort of nitty-gritty of what his, his thesis means. Um, so to review, just when we last saw our heroes, um, the Galatians are under the sway of legalism, teaching them that what uh, their salvation depends on is a Jesus and type of formula, Jesus plus something. In this case, it's Jesus plus the Judaizers. So you have to come to faith and you have to be circumcised. You, you have, there is a part of the law that you have to sort of fulfill yourself uh, in order to achieve salvation. Uh, Paul is disappointed in them, to put it mildly. Uh, he's called them, called them foolish very frequently. I was reading a commentary early this week that uh, translates the uh, O Foolish Galatians, uh, beginning of uh, chapter 3, verse 1, as uh, possibly being better translated, Dear Idiots of Galatia. Um, so when you start off the section of your letter with Dear Idiots, you sort of, you sort of get your point across. It's like he's talking to the, the three stooges. He wants to bonk all their heads together and say, we've been over this. Um, but he gives his thesis uh, a little bit earlier in what we talked about last week in chapter 2, verse 16, which says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. If you had to put the whole book in one verse, that's the verse you put it in, right? That is, that is the key. If you don't come away with anything else, that's what, that's what you come away with. That's the purpose of the thesis. Um, and this is one of those moments, uh, I don't know who originally coined the term, but growing up in Brentwood Baptist Church, uh, the term that was used for the sort of parts of scripture we like to ignore or hard or controversial, we call them black sharpie moments, right? The moments you'd rather kind of scribble out and rather ignore. This is not one of those. This is one of those that as, as Baptists in particular that we're, we're very good at very good at defending and very good at talking about how things come through faith and not by works or by the law. We're, we're, we're very good at this. So I've, I've sort of tried to coin the opposite term. It's a happy highlighter moment, you know? It's a moment you kind of paint all over, you put it on your fridge, you cross-stitch it, that, that kind of thing. Um, and I think it's worth noting that it is just as easy to go astray with those as it is with the black Sharpie moments. It's way too easy to write moments like these off and say, right, I got this, I know, it's by faith, we're cool, like, on to the next chapter, uh, without actually w looking into what it means and the ways we might uh, mistake it for something else. Uh, so starting at the beginning of the chapter, uh, I'll, read, I'll read the first, first nine verses. This is sort of, sort of his q and I'll stop at some point. The first verse says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is part of the English major nerd in me, but I really like the use of the word bewitched, right? A lot of people can accuse Paul of sort of using bad English or being flighty and occasionally sort of breaking out into song, you know, in, in the middle of his chapters, and I don't think that does him enough credit really as a writer. The use of the word bewitched, it's a pagan word, right? It, it, the Greek translates to sort of giving something the evil eye. So it's almost as if he's saying by falling into this sway of legalism and being like the Judaizers, you're just as far off as the pagans are. The more dangerous thing is you think you know it. <laughs> right? But he uses that word, and then he continues, let me ask you only this, and then proceeds to ask five questions in so many verses. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? That one goes without saying. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that this know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand for Abraham, saying, In you all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So th this whole section, he's, he's basically asking the Galatians, have you forgotten how you got here, right? Have you forgotten how you came to be where you are? And he, he does it, I sort of divide it up into three sections in the outline, right? The first verse is, have you forgotten how everybody's got here, right? You saw Christ crucified. You, you were there. Like, did this, it was hard to miss, you know? That, did, you, did, did you miss that part? The second is, have you forgotten how you were brought to Christ, right? Have you forgotten that it was not by the works of the law, but by the Spirit that saved you? Have you forgotten how you personally? And the third one, have you forgotten how Abraham got here in the first place, right? Abraham lived before the law was a thing. There's no way he could have been justified by the law because the law did not exist. So it's a good, it's a good you know, if, if you were in a debate, this would be a good counter-argument, right? You think the law is supposed to save you. Here's a guy you obviously believe is saved. The law didn't exist. What gives? And he tells you what gives. He quotes bits of Genesis. He quotes Genesis 15:6 when he talks about it being counted as righteousness, right? Abraham believed, and then it was counted as righteousness. Not Abraham went and obeyed, or Abraham was circumcised, or Abraham went to the land. None of that. Abraham believed, and then it was counted to, uh, to him as righteousness. And the second bit of Genesis he, uh, he sort of alludes to, if not quotes, is Genesis 12:3, which is what the actual promise to Abraham is. Uh, which we'll get more into a bit later, but it's the idea that through you all the nations of the world will be blessed, right? That, that, that's the key to it. And that is the promise that Paul is saying, that we and everyone else who believes is heir to through, through that sacrifice, but we'll get, we'll get more into the logistics of that um, a little bit later. And this question of how did you, uh, have you forgotten how you got here, gets asked a lot of, uh, of God's people, of the scripture. 
one of the reasons we keep the Old Testament around, right, one of the reasons we don't just focus on the last half uh, isn't just because, you know, God is unchanging or because the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old, but also because people don't change all that much, right? We're, we're, it, it, it's the same sort of process. And throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, God is constantly asking his people to remember, Remember what has been done. For the people of Israel, that was a literal geographic reality, right? When he asks you, do you remember how you got here? It's literally, do you remember how you got out of Egypt? It's me, right? I, I did that. It's Exodus 22. He says, uh, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. He even gives them ways to remember, right? The stones at the Jordan. That's Joshua 4. They said, when your children ask you, right? What happened here? You say, the Jordan parted when the Ark of the Covenant went over, right? You say, it gives, it gives you a physical way to remember that. My family does that. They put little mezuzahs in their doorway. It's a Jewish tradition. It confused the heck out of me as I was younger, and still kind of does, admittedly. But, but it's meant as a reminder, right? It's meant as you go through the doorway, you remember. It's like, hey, this, was, this is the point. This is, this is the idea. And yet... And yet we fall away. I have uh, foregone the uh, explicit uh, scriptural citation to just say literally half of the Old Testament. Um, because if you turn to a random page in the Old Testament, uh, you have a pretty good probability of hitting something that says, and they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's said enough times. You'll probably, you'll probably come across that. And so they still fall away. Just like the Galatians do. This is just another continuation of that. It's not physical. It's not a geographic, do you remember how you got to Galatia, but it's a, do you remember how you were saved, how you came to be a part of the body? It wasn't through what you're preaching right now. There's clearly a disjunction. And this isn't just something that Paul made up. This isn't just something that he sort of drew out of thin air. This has basis in not just the law, not just the promise of Abraham, but in the teachings of Christ often quoted Mark 5, uh, 5.34, right? Your faith has made you well. That's, that's an intentional phrasing, right? Your faith has made you well. Let's turn to uh, Luke 19. That's where I want to go. Where I want to go first. It's the story of Zacchaeus, right? It's a good, good classic Sunday school, Sunday school sort of lesson. And at the end of it, uh, so I'm looking at verse 8. Uh, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You'll notice he does not say, Zacchaeus gave half his goods to the poor and will repay anybody he defrauded. And so salvation has come to this house. Those things are important. Otherwise, A, Zacchaeus wouldn't have done them as a response to faith, and B, Luke wouldn't have written it down. <laughs> right? But that's not what causes, that is, that is not what precedes the salvation. He says, you are saved because you are an heir to Abraham, as is this entire house. So what Paul is talking about is not coming from thin air, right? It is founded in not just the teachings, but the actions of Christ, but the very things that he did. 
And he gets more into that. Uh, as much as we've divided the book into sort of uh, defended, explained, and applied, he does his fair share of defending here still, e even as he's explaining the doctrine further. So uh, le let's, look at, let's look at verse 10. Let's go a little further from there. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Deuteronomy 27, 6. 26, sorry. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2, 4. It's the last time you read Habakkuk. It's a good one. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. It's Leviticus 18, 5. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Deuteronomy 21, 23. So that in Christ, Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And this is something I didn't see in a lot of, a lot of the commentaries I've read about this. And maybe it's because this point is obvious. Um, at least it wasn't immediately to me. But one of the reasons I think uh, Paul continues, he basically goes four verses in a row citing Law and the Prophets, right? Down the line, he goes, we know this because it is written here, and then we know this because it's written here. He, he, he would write a very good paper, A+. plus. No. Um, but I think part of the reason he does this is a lot of the accusations that come from legalists when it comes to any sort of uh, doctrine defending the idea that we're saved by faith. The accusation will always come that you're throwing out the law, right? You don't care about the rules, you, you're just trying to put it away, you want to do whatever you want, right? You're some kind of newfangled thing, and we would rather stick to our rules, right? And that's not what Paul's doing. Paul made the point, we talked about this last week, right, in chapter 2, when he was sharing his personal testimony. He was like, I, I was a Jew among Jews, right? I knew what I was talking about. I knew the law backwards and forwards, and I used it to kill people, right? That, that's what he says. So he's like, I, I know my stuff. He's saying, I, I am aware of the law, and I believe this comes from it. So he, he is emphasizing that what he is teaching here, what the doctrine of salvation by faith is, is the fulfillment of the law, not the abolition of it, not the annulment of it, right? It, it is the end product. It is, it's the end game. Right? It's not something that erases or overcomes or overshadows. A and he says that explicitly. It's ver verse 12, right? But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. It's an important choice of preposition, right? You live by the law. You live by those actions. But you do not live because of them. Right? That's, that's the difference. He said, you are alive because of faith. It's the end of that Zac Zacchaeus story, right? He came to seek and save the lost. Why would he say that at the end? Because that was a story where he sought and saved the lost, <laughs> right? It's easy, easy question. So that's the point he's making. It, it continues to be something you live by, but you have to be careful that you don't think you live because of it. That's the distinction, the distinction that he makes. And so, and by doing that, you know, by speaking the truth, right? He shows that this is not some kind of old school, new school divide, right? It's not a divide between conservative and liberal Christians, Jews and Jew, uh, 
Jews and Gentiles, anything like that, and he'll get more in, in, into that explicitly at the end. Uh, but he says, th this is not a matter of doctrinal opinion. This is how the old stuff develops. This is, how, this is the accumulation, that was the word I was looking for, of everything the law preaches and everything Christ preached. This is the point. <laughs> no. and, he, and he says at the end, uh, he, you know, a, a, as we talked about earlier, um, this isn't just me, right? Christ did this too. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentile. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So he's sort of refuted the accusation that he's um, annulling or abolishing any part of the law. But he's also saying Christ didn't do that either. He fulfilled it, right? There was still a payment to be made. And he did it, and now it's clear. So it's not as if he even rewrote the rules, even though he's God, he can do whatever he wants, right? But he didn't. He completed the rules and said, here's how you live now. He said, that, that's, you know, there are so many places you can take the words, it is finished, <laughs> right? That's, that's a good one. That's one of the ones that spoke to me here. And then he continues, so we get to, the, get to the last half of the chapter. And so I'll, I'll, I'll read through this, read through verse 29, and then sort of come back to the beginning. Because it's, it's, especially the last half of this chapter, I think, has to sort of be taken all at once uh, before, before it gets parsed through. So he says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes pro by promise. But God gave it to Abraham, by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an inter intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as, many of you, uh, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have been put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise.
So he goes back, verse 15. He goes back to his man-made example. He's, he's quoted bits of Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Habakkuk to us. So now he's back. He, he, he's back to Abraham. And the point he's basically making is, okay, so if you were, you were counter-arguing Paul, right? We, we've established the, the Abraham came before the law. He points that out again <laughs> just to just sort of poke at you. He says, so that happened before. So why does the law even matter, right? Abraham lived before it. He did fine for himself, right? What gives? Who cares? That's the question. Why then the law, right? He said, it was added because of transgression. So the offspring come to whom the promise has been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Uh, one of the conversations, I don't know if my dad stole this phrase from somewhere or if it was invented by, by us, I don't remember, but one, one of the things he talked about is righteousness as an output, right? He's mentioned that before. It's righteousness as an output. The demonstrations put forth in the law were added because of transgression, because of sin, because of the broken circumstances in which we happen to live. Um, but the reason that law is there, the reason those actions are there is because they act as fruit, right? They act as an output. So Paul is not saying the law is annulled, you can do whatever you want. He's not even saying the law is fulfilled, you can do whatever you want. He's saying those actions show what's happened in here. Show the salvation that you have already achieved through faith. It is a demonstration. Abraham's obedience was a demonstration of that. Zacchaeus's obedience was a demonstration of that. The idea that righteousness is a, a demonstration of that kind of faith. Right. The law demonstrates but does not save. Right. You, can't, uh, you can't get the best score on the test and then win, win your ticket to heaven sort of thing, right? Do X, Y, and Z. Be a lot simpler. But it's an output. It comes afterwards. It's the old uh, philosophical, uh, the, the word they use for it is uh, essence before existence, right? This debate between that and existence before essence. It says you either are and therefore you do, or you do and therefore you are. And as Christians who believe that what Paul is saying is true, we believe in the form. You are, therefore you do. You are saved by Christ. You are an heir to his promise, and thus you act accordingly. And that is important, right? <laughs> thus you have to act accordingly. That is, that is the output. If that is not the output, if that is not the fruit that you are putting forward, right? Let's turn to, where do I have it there? Turn, turn to Matthew 7, right? I went a little too far back. There we are, right? Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That didn't happen in Galatia. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. And there's something communal in that too, right? An apple tree isn't indeterminate. And then it grows apples and becomes an apple tree. <laughs> Not how plants work. Right? It is an apple tree, and thus it bears fruit. It bears fruit accordingly. It makes apples. Right? It is an output. And is it, it is an output for others. An apple tree doesn't eat its own fruit. <laughs> Metaphor works on a number of levels. Right? Jesus is good like that. You know? it goes, but it's output for others, outwardly. 
And so we get, get into the rest of the chapter. And uh, especially I, I want to emphasize the, the part towards the end, starting, starting at verse 27. It says, for as, many of you were, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And I think a lot of times when passages like this or other passages in Scripture are talked about, um, when we talk about the dangers of false doctrine that, that arise, a lot of times we, we mention that it's a thing, we mention that it's happening, and we don't go a lot into the why, right? The why legalism would be so appealing to a lot of people who profess to be believers, right? Why is, that, why is that seductive? And one of the reasons it is seductive is because it offers a control that is comforting, right? It offers a division that is comforting. When your salvation, when what is most important is determined by what you do, by your obedience to the law, there will, as a consequence, be people on the inside who obey the law and people on the outside who don't. It is inherent to what law does. It was created because of trans transgressions. We got hit that earlier, right? And so it gives us, it gives that sort of legalism a, a, a grasp, a hold on who's in and who's out. It promotes a sort of comforting disunity, right? It creates a, a division that is comfortable and that is, it, it's, it feels good to be on the inside, you know? to be inside the wall, to feel like I'm, I'm better, I did it, right? The rich young ruler, right? I've kept all your commands. I got it, I checked off the list. The Pharisee and the tax collector. Thank God I'm not like him. <laughs> Thank God I'm not like the other guy. And that's not what we're called toward. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male and female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. I think it was Pastor Jay who said the uh, grounds level at the foot of the cross. Right? Love that phrase. It's the illustration he used last Sunday of uh, Philadelphia after the Super Bowl. Right? All those people gathered in the streets. Different, uh, different homes, different crowds, but all on the same team and all celebrating. I love that picture. Also love the Eagles. So that helps. Uh, but that's, that, that's the picture he wants to give us. So what this gospel of grace, when you're explaining the gospel of grace, which if we're going back to, that is the purpose of these two chapters, three and four. Part of his explanation is that grace does not seek that kind of control. God doesn't need more, any more authority than he already has, right? That seeking control is something we do because it feels good. It feels good to be the one who dresses right Goes to church on Sundays, gets the, gets the right parking spot, all that good stuff. But, but it doesn't save you. And the second part, and this is why I wanted to sort of read this all at once, is the idea that grace is not a contract. I don't know if I'm alone in this experience, but whenever the story of Abraham was taught to me as a little kid, uh, they, they were really excited to teach you what the word covenant meant. They were like re really, really hyped up about it, because it's, it's different from a contract. 
in a way, in a very important way. But when you're just reading that story, it's hard to get the distinction well, because all you're going off of is a story about a covenant, right? It's, it's hard to draw a comparison there. Um, but what, what he talks about is he uses the human example, right? Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So there's the difference, difference between a contract. The law is a sort of contract, right? You transgress and are punished accordingly, right? You do the wrong thing, you receive some kind of punishment outlined already by the law. The covenant was not a contract. I want to I, I look to where that promise was made. I was meaning to turn to it earlier. Let's go back to Genesis 12. The difference between a covenant and a contract. Right. I'll start at verse 1. Context is always good. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That promise is not contingent on Abram's obedience. Abram does obey, right? He does go into the land he's going to show you, and he goes, he, he, do, he does the right things. Go him. We're very proud. But that's not contingent on it. God said, I will bless everyone through you. There's, a, there's an air of whether you like it or not. That is what my promise. That's the difference between a covenant and a contract. That is the distinction Paul's making in verse 16, or 18. I'm sorry. When he says, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is, it no longer comes by promise because the law is contractual, because the law is dependent upon that obedience. The consequences of the law don't come if you don't obey or disobey. Grace is nothing like that. Grace just comes. It simply is saying that the promise will be fulfilled and fulfilling that promise. That's it. That's, that's the difference. That is what, throughout Scripture, God's love is supposed to look like. Right? There's a really good, uh, mm, I don't remember who said it. It's Gil Vicente. It's a Portuguese poet whose name I'm probably saying wrong. Uh, who said, the pursuit of love is like falconry. Right? It goes in circles. Right? It's a pursuit. Right? It's something you go, go after. A pursuit is not necessarily contingent on the other person. It's something that's driven from you. In God's case, it's driven from God, right? It's not contingent on our obedience or disobedience, on what clothes we wear, on the things we do on Sundays, on anything like that. It just loves, right? It just goes after you. And it's the demonstration of love we are heirs to. I had a really good conversation. I don't remember what this was with my dad. Uh, a little while ago, it, it, that verse in 1 John that I referenced towards the end there, 4.8, when it says God is love. It's another one we like to highlight and cross-stitch, right? It's, it's, it's fun, it's fancy. Uh, I don't think we often take that into reverse. It's the identity property, I think, is what it's called in math, right? If, if x equals y, y equals x. Engineer dad, sorry. Yeah. 
But that's what it is. So if God is love, love is God. So all of the adjectives, all the uh, praises, all of the honorifics, all of the descriptions that we have of God also apply to love. Love is all-powerful. Love is all-knowing. Love is all-seeing. Love is ever-present, eternal, timeless. All of those things apply to that. And so that kind of love, that kind of grace that Paul is explaining here is all of those things. And it's why, it's why we have hope. There's a really good uh, Frederick Buechner quote that I, I really enjoy that's uh, at the end of here. Of all powers, love is the most powerful and the most powerless. It is the most powerful because it alone can conquer that final and most impregnable stronghold, which is the human heart. It's the most powerless because it can do nothing except by consent. Right. Heard, uh, heard a lot, uh, heard Christianity compared to uh, a train a lot, right? Something you hop onto. But it's going. It's going whether you're walking, running, driving, anything. Right. He is hopping on. There's a story I wanted to end with. I spent, for those of you who have not heard any of my parents or family brag on me for this, um, I spent the last two months in Cambodia uh, teaching English to Theravada Buddhist monks at a university there. It still feels weird to say. Um, but towards the end of my time there, I did a really interesting exercise. Um, for one of the classes that I was teaching, they literally did not give me a syllabus, so I was sort of making it up as I was going along. Um, and he was like, teach them how to, uh, he, was, he said, teach them how to write and how to speak. And I went, cool. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, did, I did an exercise where I said, um, I want you to write me a paragraph and then speak for two minutes and answer three questions. Sort of two, uh, sort of two and a half, I guess. Um, what is hope? What is hope to you? Uh, and should we or can we have hope, right? Sort of prompt I gave them was, life can seem pretty bad sometimes, right? Does hope still make sense? And the answers I got were very interesting. Obviously, you're working with uh, a bunch of people for whom English is a second language, uh, and it, it is hard to express yourself in a language in which you are still learning. My French professors can attest. Um, but... Uh, and so most of them for that first question gave pretty elementary answers, pretty basic, straightforward, dictionary definition, you know, hope is having optimistic feelings towards the future, stuff like that, stuff they probably Googled uh, in, in all odds. Um, but it was the should we or can we have hope that was interesting. Um, because when they, try, when they answered that question, uh, most of them answered it in a way that said, when you don't have hope, uh, you can't do anything, right? Despair is a paralytic. They didn't use the word paralytic. I taught them the word afterwards, but uh, they, they, they said despair is something that stops you from doing something, right, anything. With hope, you can do more things. You can move forward, right? Uh, you, are, you are less likely to fall into all of this is meaningless and there is no point. Uh, either I got that answer, or I got the answer that hope somehow makes you morally better, right? It just makes you a better person because it makes you a better person. Um, none of them gave me the answer that you should have hope because there's something to hope for. 
That struck me. And I don't know what that's a product of. Uh, if I had to put a theory, it'd be a product of being in a country who's, uh, that killed its, uh, between a fifth and a third of its population 40 years ago and was slowly sliding back into authoritarianism right now, but I can give the Cambodian history lesson another time. Um, but circumstances regardless, I think most people would answer those questions like that, right? And that's what that focus on, that, that, that's what that legalistic focus is, is it doesn't just create disunity, it's, it's an idea without hope. There is no hope in the idea that those works save you. It just isn't. It's not there. This is why we have hope. Right? It's that kind of love demonstrated for us. A love that isn't under obligation or contract or anything like that. A love that just sort of does. You know? And that doesn't just give us hope salvifically, right? For salvation. Right. Even though that is very much the, the argument Paul is making, that's the importance, what does and does not save us. But it also gives us hope on the day-to-day, -day because that's the kind of hope we have the honor, that, that's the kind of love we have the honor to emulate. Not the obligation, not the meeting any kind of criteria, but we, we see it and we want to do more of it. We want to make more of the kind of love that just says, I'll be there because I'll be there, you know? Just because, because I love. That's the kind of hope we have. So we have hope at the end game, right? For the ultimate salvation, the idea that through faith we are saved, but we also have hope for right now. That because of the act that saved us by faith, because of that fulfillment of the law, we can act the same way. And we can act for the love for other people out there in a way that doesn't depend on them, it doesn't depend on us. This kind of overflows, right? The Mike Glenn phrase, you, you can't contain the ocean in a thimble. It just spills out. Yeah. I know I'm a bit early, but I think that's about all I have. So, yeah. We have questions? All right. Well, first of all, and all of God's people said, amen. amen. Um, a couple of things to note. Benjamin, I'm afraid you have set a new standard that you work through the material in much less time than Brian and I do. Now they're going to expect us to be that succinct and on point every Wednesday night. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know, Brian, that this was a great idea. Now that I'm sitting there thinking about it, he's concise, he's on point. Uh, so, so good. Uh, another couple observations as I was looking at the questions. Number one, there's way more questions when Brian and I teach, <laughs> meaning that you're way more clear apparently than we are. Mm. And I don't think Brian nor I have ever gotten a comment that said excellent handling of the text. So anyway, so just uh, the trifecta there, my friend, but really, really well done and uh, really, really fun. It's been fun to watch uh, Benjamin's growth and his trajectory over the years. Uh, there is something special in this young man that God has placed within him from the time he was little. And, uh, and this is part of what we do as a church. Uh, and so Brian kind of spoke to dad. I'll kind of speak as pastor. Uh, but uh, to watch the next generation 
uh, grow up, be rooted in the gospel, to be able to come, uh, articulate it this clearly, teach it that well. Um, uh, there's an old pre- saying that as preachers have, if you hear a preacher say, that'll preach, do you know what that means? I'm going to steal that and use it in one of my sermons. <laughs> That's what it means. So there are several things that have I highlighted in my notes to which I said to myself, that'll preach, meaning y'all will hear it on a Sunday morning. Uh, at some time in the future, but uh, obviously uh, you do have a gift for language and and being able to uh, articulate things very, very well. So with that said, uh, let's get to a few of the questions. Uh, Brian, what we got? Sure. Um, Yeah, you did get an excellent handling of the relationship. Oh, great. Now you're getting more excellence, just what we were hoping for. Outstanding. That moves all the way to the top. Um, What is the proper way for us as New Testament Christians to deal with the Old Testament law? For example, what about the Ten Commandments? That's a, that's a fabulous question, right? And what we talked about was what the law shows us is what sin is, right? The law shows us what transgressions are. And so as we, we are saved by faith, but we live a, a life of righteousness. We're going to get into this. I've been, I'm going to teach Galatians 5. We're going to get into what freedom is, right? And, 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 you'll, and you'll hear this example in about two weeks. And, and basically, right, freedom, we are, we are saved by faith. <coughs> But we don't. We are not saved to sin. We are saved from sin, yeah. right? And and when you sin, right? What's the consequence of sin? Death. And so, if you're saved and go about sinning, things around you die, and so you end up in a in, in a place where there is just death all around you, right? But what what the law gives us is a way to lead our life that leads to life, that edifies that builds up because because when you don't have any other gods, right? When you don't lie, when you don't covet, when you don't steal, right? The the the, the community is edified. Things are built up. And so we follow that law because it is it is the way life comes to us. The way life comes through us from God. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, I think in regards to the Ten Commandments, for example, uh, since that was asked specifically, uh, there's a couple of important things to remember. One, of course, remember Jesus was put on the spot uh, about which of the commandments was the most important. Uh, the Pharisees wanted to kind of trap him, ask him that question. And, uh, and one of the things that's very interesting to me, and, and Benjamin did a good job of pointing this out, right? But Jesus didn't abolish the law. He fulfilled it. Uh, and so, in other words, he, as the author of all scripture, as the author of the law, uh, helped us to understand its true intent. And so, of course, Jesus summarizes what we call the first table of the Ten Commandments with love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and so, of course, using Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus chapter 19, uh, the first four commandments deal with our relationship with God. The second six, that's the second table of the Ten Commandments, deals with our relationships with others. And even in the very things we were talking about this past Sunday, uh, you know, the idea that our vertical relationship with God affects our horizontal relationship with others. Love God, love others. I mean, that is the heart of the law. And so the law was given us as a pointer in many ways to what the ultimate fulfillment would be in Christ. We didn't know what that fulfillment looked like because we couldn't get there ourselves. But the law serves its purpose, and so we don't need to just, you know, as Benjamin noted, you know, take a Sharpie and go through it because of what Jesus did. Instead, we need to understand it through the lens of how Jesus fulfilled it and how that informs our lives to this day. And, of course, there were different types of law in the Old Testament, not to get super technical tonight, but there's (laughs) things like the ceremonial law. 
Uh, and, and so, of course, Jesus abolished that because we're saved not by our keeping of the law, but by grace. It wasn't the outward sign that mattered anyway. It was the inward, uh, the inward heart uh, that that came from. And so that has always, you know, again, Jesus returning us to that true intent um, is, is another example of not only does the law show us that we can't live up to it, but Jesus fulfilled us to show us what it looked like uh, in all of its fullness. Because as it says in Ephesians 1.23, Christ fills all things in every way, uh, and including the fulfillment of the law. All right, well, what else we got, Brian? Brent, Benjamin, anything to add to that, sir? Uh, no, not, not much. I think it's also worth pointing out that Christ fulfilled the law when he died. He also obeyed it when he lived, right? We have mm. record of that, too. Yeah, good word. Right? So, like, the, when, when you love your neighbor, when you do all these things, when that change happens, not stealing, not killing, not coveting, those things happen as a consequence. They happen as an output. And he showed it both when he lived and when he died. That was all. <laughs> Welcome to my living room. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, how do we best address the spirit of legalism that is alive and well and creates disunity in our churches today? Ben, you want to try? Want me, me start on that one? Sure. Uh, well, it's. I mean, you talked about this last week. I had a, like a family feud, like good answer moment when you did the, the Q&A. Last time, a church that preaches that you are saved by the law, that you are saved by the works, is not preaching the gospel. Amen. Bury it. They missed it by a pretty wide margin. Skipped at least four chapters of the book, if not Romans as well, and lots of other places. <laughs> um, so they've, they, they've omitted a good chunk. Um, but when it comes to dealing with that, the, the Abraham argument is a good one, but I think it starts with asking what your hope is in. Because mm. right? yeah. if, you, if you are following legalism, at least how it's defined here, your hope is going to be in Christ and something else. Mm. So you have to ask, explain that something else to me. <laughs> explain how exactly that works. Um, I, think, I think that's a good way of addressing it, but I leave it to someone who actually runs a church. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> oh. Yeah, nice. Yes, nice Welcome segue right there, wasn't it? Yeah, so, so effective. Yeah, yeah I'll go. Yeah, over here. I, I think I think obviously the practical way that this works it out is that we profess and sing and talk about grace, and we all know the Sunday school answer, but we default to functional legalism, yeah. uh, and so I think that's the temptation. And so I think, again, studying the gospel, preaching the gospel to ourselves continually pointing to the gospel, those, that's part of why we gather, right, in Hebrews 10. is to uh, Hebrews 10 tells us to, that we need that constant instruction together as a people, or we tend to slide into legalism, which, as you pointed out, is something that we can control, right? If we can keep the list of rules, if we can check all of the boxes, then we put God in our box, or so we think, uh, and we think he owes it to us, right? Uh, so I have many friends who will tell you, you know, um, things in their life, such as cancer, have taught them important lessons. Because prior to that, even though they knew the, the gospel of grace, they'd read the book of Galatians, they thought, if I live a good Christian life, then anything bad won't happen to me. And then something like cancer happens to them. And then it totally scrambles their eggs because they had that assumption, which was what? It was a functional legalism. Mm -hmm. If I do this, then God is obligated to keep me and my family healthy and happy and safe, right? When there's no such guarantees in Scripture. 
And so the reality of grace is recognizing that God operates in a variety of situations. And as we've talked about repeatedly, and all of those people, suffering actually produces a deeper understanding of God's grace uh, and what God has done for us in Jesus and that we're dependent upon him because we want to be what? Independent. We want to be dependent upon us. Uh, and so at the end of the day, we preach and talk grace, but we act like we're trying to save ourselves. And so that idea that our righteousness comes from grace, springs from grace, and not from our attempts, you know, no matter how subtle that we slide back into that mentality because of our humanity uh, and because of who we are, that we want to be God instead of serving God um, and responding to the gospel of grace. That is a, a subtle temptation for all of us. And that's what I see as a pastor. Again, it's well-meaning people who over time, right, they get a little off in their belief and then they walk down that path and that can infect entire churches that if you don't come to church X number of times a month, that if you don't do these things, if you don't act like a good Christian, you know, all of these just, you know, silly things. But the reality is, is they become a way of life for some people. And we try to, you know, act like their people are spiritually superior to others. Um, and so that is just that form of the, the various types of things that Paul is addressing here uh, in the book of Galatians. Well, that's the importance of Christian community. Yes, right? yeah, absolutely. People have to know you well enough to see you make those small deviations. Yeah, that's good. And call you out on it. Yep. Right? Because if you can catch it, the small deviations, and that's why we have to hold each other accountable. Yeah. Right? And that includes Jay, that includes me, that, include, that includes anybody. I mean, one of, the, one of the problems we have in so many of these churches is that the pastors aren't accountable to anyone. Yes. Right? They don't. That, that is a magnificent thing to watch Jay sit under Benjamin's teaching. Right? That is an act of humility. Right? Taking Jay notes, sits, might I add. Right. And stealing, and stealing things for his sermons, which... <laughs> I'm not sure where that falls, but right. But, thou but, shalt not steal. Thou shalt not steal. Yeah, that was in the Ten Commandments somewhere. Um, but anyway, it, it right. But but that accountability, right? Having those people that can speak to you honestly, right? Do you have people in your life that can speak to you honestly? And it's another reason. Let me jump off on that too, because I've had some conversations lately with the people in our own community who are of the "we just need Jesus, we don't need the church" mm -hmm. mentality. Uh, and so part of the reason that's dangerous is for this very reason, that's right. that we need to live in accountable biblical community with one another. A covenant community, we talked about the word covenant tonight, uh, is, is, a, is a word that's sometimes used to describe biblical community in which we covenant with one another to say, hey, if you're out of line, I love you enough to tell you. Uh, the passage we looked at last week, Paul says, I, I got in Peter's face. I mean, this is Peter, right? The apostle Peter, right? I got in his face to confront him about this kind of issue. The problem is, again, we like to get in each other's faces about things that don't matter, that aren't, and then we don't get in each other's faces about the things that do, you know? But, but this is a thing that clearly does. And there's the inverse of that. If, you don't, if you're not in community, who are you bearing fruit for? Right. There's nobody around you to see the peace, patience, love, kindness, goodness, the whole, the whole list, right? Mm. So there's the opposite of that. There's the idea that when you're straying away, you know, there's no one to hold you accountable, but also when you're doing the right thing, there's nobody to celebrate in that with. Yeah, good word. Right. You don't bear fruit for yourself, right? An apple tree doesn't bear apples for itself. Right. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good. Wow. I'm just here to ask the question. Ask the question. <laughs> I don't say anything anymore. Um, Let me think about this for a second. So, will there be a difference in people in heaven, Jew or not? 
and unto salvation, no, there is no difference, right? That's, that's the whole point of the end of, of Galatians 3. And by the way, that is widely used as a hermeneutic in false gospels. Yeah. Okay, it, it is used as a base hermeneutic in false gospels. That's good. And so you need to be really careful with the context of Galatians 3.28 because what that's speaking is unto justification. It's unto being saved in salvation, right? All the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are all the same being saved. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what you look like, mm-hmm. right? We, we are all saved through faith. Same faith in Christ saves every last one of us. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. Right? Amen. Now, there are other things in sanctification, right, where the law comes into play, where Paul's writings come into play, and this has been used to misinterpret many of those things. And so you've got to be really, really careful with the hermeneutic you use. And a hermen- hermen- for those of you who know, hermeneutic is a way of interpreting the Bible, right, the basis, of, the basis of, of, of thought that goes into how you interpret the Bible. And so they, the, you have to be really, really careful with how these things are used and, and that they're taken within the context, which you call the totality of Scripture, right? That within the totality of Scripture, we understand where these things stand and how they operate. Does that make sense? Yes. So don't pluck 328 <laughs> out of context, <laughs> right? Is the, is the, the short version, yeah. But, but yeah, absolutely. But yeah, when it comes to, obviously, heaven, all are equal. Now, you know, it's interesting, Romans 11, uh, Paul addresses what? this. You know, that, that God's plan to use his people will be fulfilled. And we as Gentiles, I think most of us in this room would classify as Gentiles, right? We have been grafted in to that same tree, right? Then it becomes the family, ultimate family tree of God. Uh, and so those distinctions, I think we'll know and celebrate Absolutely. from whatever direction God brought us into his family, whether we began as a Jew or a Gentile, but all of those who are justified by faith whether in the Old Covenant, which is, of course, the people in the Old Testament, Hebrews 11 speaks about that, uh, or those of us in the New Covenant. But that's the beauty of the body, right? I mean, Absolutely. You, you, and and yeah. those of us who believe, right, you see how God uses your story to his glory. Yes. Right, how he uses the way you were saved, how he uses the experiences you went through to his glory, right? Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Right, that all these things work, and it's the diversity. I mean, there is no other reason. For the people, for all of us who are sitting in this room to be together other than Jesus. That's right. Right? When you look at us from a socioeconomic, from, from whatever, whatever level line of diversity, there is no reason for us to sit in the same room. Yeah. Right? That's one of the most fun things to me, especially as pastor, to watch how God builds a body. Because the Church of Station Hill didn't exist 10 years ago. But I have watched, I've had a front row seat to watch God bring the right people with the right gifts, the right testimonies, the right stories. And I tell you often, I wish you could see through my eyes when I look out at you as a congregation and to know all of the stories of grace. And so one of the things that I'm continually frustrated by is that in this lifetime, we don't have enough time to sit down and just hear and celebrate all those stories. But we're going to have a blast in eternity, right? Remembering and hearing all of the stories of what God did by his grace in our lives. Amen. That's all. We've got four questions. That's it. That's it. Yeah. We have now set a new standard. So please don't anticipate Jay or I living up to this next week. Um, Much much as we, much as we love you. you. There there was another couple that snuck on the bottom there. I'm sorry. Uh, No, it's okay. It just said, if grace is from God and has always been here, why use the law at all? Benjamin, you want to jump into that one? Well, we talked about that a bit, but it says verse 19, right? Why then the law? That's that question, right? It was added because of transgressions. 
Yeah. It's added because of the world and the circumstances in which we live. Yeah. There is sin. There are very, very bad things, right? The law shows us what an output, that, that was uh, what he used, we know sin leads to death. The law shows us the things that lead to death and the things that live to lead to life. And we work attempting, often and always falling short to some degree, to do things that bring life. That's what those things show. Yeah. And so th that is the purpose of it. Uh, just because something doesn't achieve salvation doesn't mean it's entirely useless. Right. It's just important to remember that that's not what achieves salvation, that's right? Good. It's like what we talked about at the end. All those distinctions are yeah. important, Jew, Gentile, your individual story, all of those yeah. things like that. Those things are important and good, but they do not preclude or cause salvation. Yeah. That's the distinction yeah. he's making. And Paul uses a word picture. I'm so glad whoever asked that question did because this it, it jogged my memory. That word picture, the law was what? Our guardian until Jesus Christ. And here's what it made me think about. Uh, many of you know our church has a program that we partner with Bethany Christian Services called Safe Families. That's where we've got about 16 active families who are taking in children whose uh, uh, parents need help uh, for a period of time. We become the guardian of those children, right, until the family is at a point that they can take that child back. In other words, that that family is healthy, that they, they reach a point, right, of maturity. And so I love that word picture, right? We all understand that guardianship in our culture. And so the law was put in place, right, to, to help us deal with our sinful natures as our guardian until in God's timing, the fulfillment of his plan brought Christ and the gospel. Uh, and so I love that word picture, you know, that Paul uses. And that for me has been a very helpful way to kind of understand the law. Uh, you know, so Benjamin is brilliant with words. Um, I'm the guy who needs pictures, right? Uh, so uh, the illustrations to help flesh that out. And so that just it always is a helpful word picture for me when it comes to what the purpose of the law is. It's very important to have a guardian, right? To shepherd you through, um, to be sure that that child is safe until you know, the fulfillment uh, and maturity of that family is complete. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And the last one, I think, was a statement. It says, uh, in working through a catechism book, the very first question is, what is our only hope? And that we aren't our own, but belong to Jesus, that's hope. Which is what, what Benjamin basically ended with, right? That the, that the hope we have isn't mm -hmm. found in our circumstance. The hope we have mm -hmm. isn't found in, in doing something or not doing something, but in Christ alone. Yeah. And that's all we got. But in God's grace, it's all each of us have. Yeah. Right? Amen. And that hope influences those circumstances, right? Uh, one of the mistakes that is made, kind of at the, the other extreme of this, the sort of opposite of legalism, is made that that's, that's kind of the one thing that matters, what happens after this. So none of this, none of this is important, and that's a lie, yeah. right? Because that hope is a, as, as a result of a love that we have the honor of participating in right now, right, when we walk out of here, right? So that impacts how we live all the time even if it is ultimately about what's at the end of the road. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they are, they're already calling for you to return. We ship him off. Uh, we're going to have to pray and close before we have a vote for a uh, pastor here. So. Thank, you. Thank you, Benjamin. Great, great word tonight. So, Brian, anything to add? No. All right, let me, uh, let me close this in prayer. 
Uh, Father, thank you uh, for the power of your gospel, and thank you for um, Paul's heart to clarify that, to defend it, to explain it, uh, God, and, and ultimately, of course, to apply it. And so, God, thank you that Benjamin has uh, studied God and uh, that he uh, laid it out clearly for us tonight. And so, uh, God, I thank you uh, for the reality that, uh, God, we are saved by grace uh, and through faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Uh, and anything that is Jesus and is another gospel. And so, God, I pray that tonight um, you would continue your work through your word in our hearts and our lives. I pray if there's anybody here. Uh, God, who is believing in a false gospel, who's believing that they can save themselves. I pray that uh, tonight would be the night that they turn from their sin and themselves and to Jesus as Savior. And God, for all of us who have made that turn, that we would be reminded, uh, God, that uh, functional legalism, that trying to earn our way into good standing with you is not the answer. Uh, but instead, Father, our good works are evidence that we have been saved. They're a demonstration of that faith. Uh, and so, God, help us to walk out of this place more sure of the gospel, ready to live it out in our homes, in our marriages, in our workplaces, in our schools tomorrow. And uh, thank you, God, uh, that you've given us Jesus and that he is hope personified. Uh, God, hope is not some vague idea. It's not wishful thinking as it is for much of our world. God, instead, it is a person, a person who loved us enough to come and die for us, who was raised again, and God, who lives uh, and uh, God allows us uh, to reign with him forever and ever. So God, uh, to you be the glory and thank you for our time tonight. And it's in the name, we, it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. amen.